Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you still sore at local TV meteorologists for last Wednesday's snowstorm? Their forecast for big snow accumulations didn't deliver for much of the state. Coming up, we'll talk with Ben Bogardis at Quinnipiac University, who says, don't blame the meteorologists. He'll explain, and we'll take your calls, too. That's later. We'll also learn about a partnership between Wesleyan University's Center for Prison Education and Middlesex Community College. This summer marks a milestone for some participants. We'll find out more just ahead. But first, Congress averted another government shutdown with the recent passage of a $1.3 trillion spending package. Tucked into the bill is money for states to boost election security. Now, with the midterm elections just months away, the added attention to safeguard election systems and voter identity can't come soon enough. It was just last fall when the federal government told 21 states, including Connecticut, they were targeted by hackers. For more on the steps Connecticut is taking to address voter concerns, I want to welcome back to the show Denise Merrill, Connecticut Secretary of the State, also co-chair of the National Association of Secretaries of State Election Cybersecurity Task Force. <laughs> welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. So this, uh, this omnibus uh, spending bill, um, was it a surprise that there's money now allocated for states like Connecticut? Well, actually, we as secretaries of state across the country were lobbying for that money. This is actually dollars that were originally allocated for uh, HAVA, Help America Vote Act, which was the last time we saw any federal money for elections after the famous hanging Chad election. Uh, and the entire country replaced their election machines, most of them. Uh, and so this is the first time we've seen anything like that. This is kind of leftover money from then. It's about $300 million. How much will Connecticut receive? We believe it'll be between 3 and $5 million. Uh, we are not one of the states that has the touchscreen machines, which really are a problem, I think. They don't have any kind of paper trail. We were fortunate enough to purchase the right machines, I believe, so we can trace back, you know, when the machines are functioning or not. So... So we're lucky in that way. We we won't need that portion of the funds, but still, five million dollars is quite a lot of money. Now, how do you propose uh, to uh, to use that money once you get it? How soon will you see that money? Oh, we we'll see it immediately. But there is a state match required, so I I like to remind people of that because the state will have to come up with between uh, two hundred and three hundred million dollars. We believe uh, it's a five percent match, but assuming we can get that together. Uh, we would have the money available, we believe, within a month or two. So actually this morning we're going to have a meeting figuring out exactly what we're going to do with that. Um, so you said there was a meeting where you're going to figure out what to do with this money. Mm -hmm. um, but you also announced uh, just last week that there are efforts to bolster Connecticut's election cybersecurity infrastructure. So explain what you mean by that. Well, what we found out happened when you hear about, you know, we were hacked. We were one of 21 states that were hacked. I think you have to realize what I'm, I'm learning as I go, let's put it that way, about these terms. What actually happened was we were scanned, apparently, by some IP addresses from Russian agencies. So it is indeed true 
that was actually kind of a shock to me. I didn't realize that's exactly what they were talking about because we weren't told about it for almost a year due to security concerns. So that's why um, we then, uh, secretaries, asked for security clearance because that's the only way you're going to be able to hear about whether or not your state has been breached or even attempted to be breached. So now that we know that, we have to uh, increase our efforts to make sure our uh, firewalls are in place, for lack of a better word. People can understand this, you know, when you think of your own computer. It's the same thing. The state houses the servers for our voter registration database. That's the thing that people are looking at. Our database gets scanned by outside uh, IP addresses about a million times a day. So to keep it in perspective. So what uh, system do you have in place now to safeguard this information, and how do you want to see it bolstered? Well, right now, it's it, this is all done through our IT department. There's a, a one big state IT department that houses all of these various uh, red databases. So uh, they now are uh, responsible for security for these things, and they have plenty of products, mostly bought from private vendors, that, that keep the firewalls in place, essentially. Um, but it's always changing. We don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know what the new version of the uh, attack will be. So we have to constantly be putting new versions of these um, products in place to, do, to scan the systems, to do what they call cyber cleansing of our system, make sure everything is uh, being protected properly. And they also, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, who is our new partner in all this, uh, can come in and do assessments of your systems. We have had that done. We have also used some of their products over the last year. But again, it'll keep changing, and we need some capacity in our own office to understand what's going on with our voter registration database, especially since most of this goes on at the local level. So as everyone knows, we have 169 towns. Every town has one drop point for our internal system. The voter registration database is fairly old, about 20 years old now. But it has it's a closed-loop system. It's not on the Internet. But of course, there's a lot of security needed in every town as well. So there's plenty of room for improvement in terms of making sure everyone understands that their IT department needs to be uh, protecting the system, and that they need to be doing things like changing their passwords, all the things we should be doing to provide security. You were saying that the state has an IT uh, team that works with other uh, state agencies, but you would like to see a couple more staff just allocated in your, or new staff allocated in your department that would just do this alone and be on top of the latest uh, information on, on how to safeguard this information? That's exactly right. We've requested two positions in the budget. Now, we all know <laughs> the budget these days, that's a tough sell. Uh, but I think this rises uh, to the level of importance that we need to be doing that. We need to have, I only have a very tiny IT department right now. Um, you know, we've had a lot of retirements, uh, you know, so I've lost about 20% of the staff in my agency. So I, I really believe we need to be increasing in this area.
In studio with me is Secretary of the State Denise Merrill, also co-chair of the National Association of Secretaries of State Election Cybersecurity Task Force. We're talking about uh, some of the changes, uh, some of the proposals out there uh, to safeguard our election system and voter information in the lead up to the, the November midterm elections. If you have a question, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, when you're out there talking uh, with residents, talking with uh, elections officials and particular towns. Do they have confidence in the system we have? Yeah, I think most election officials do uh, because they've been working with it for years. And you have to bear in mind that the only thing really in question here is the voter registration database. That's all the information that people give to you. And and it's what uh, enables us to figure out who is the eligible voter, where do they reside. But, you know, the, the, the scanning machine that you actually vote on is not on the internet. It's not electronic, really, except that it has a little chip that records your vote. And as I said before, we have paper ballots. So we compare the number in the machine to the number of pieces of paper. So there's plenty of checks on the system. And you know, the local registrars who are charged with really operating election day, they know there are many regulations about how you open the machines. It's all done publicly. It's very transparent. So the public can see exactly what's going on every step of the way. And I think that's terribly important to assure people that we really are watching. We really have a lot of checks and balances. We have a very strong audit process after the election, which is why it takes us two weeks to make sure we have the right numbers. So I think all the vote tallying, we're very secure. The voter registration database, even if, let's say, a Russian agency got into the database, we also have paper backup lists. So I think really the only thing I would be concerned about is the impression that there's a problem in the public. And I honestly think that was what the Russians were trying to achieve, basically chaos, right? Because if they did get in, let's say they got into this database and they took off 20,000 names or added 20,000 names, it would be uncovered pretty quickly. But in the interim, there could be some real, you know, chaos around someone coming up and saying, well, I'm on the list. No, you're not here. And it would take us a while probably at the local level to figure out. But that, I think, is not an issue in terms of changing any vote. You know, so it's important that people understand that the biggest target is you. (laughs) The biggest target is your sense of trust in your election. And that, I think, they have made progress. They, there is not the trust in elections that there was even two years ago. Now, uh, in the past, you've also, I think you've also suggested legislation or proposals to safeguard voter information. Where does that stand in this legislative session? Yes, I do have a bill that I proposed based on some of the concerns that came from the presidential commission requesting our entire voter file and a whole list of information on every voter in the state. Uh, I was concerned about that, and many people were concerned about it. I never got so many calls to my office. So I did respond with a bill that will protect the birth date, essentially, and we will not be revealing the exact birth date of people when we release the list, which we are required to do by freedom of information law. Uh, And that bill, I'm happy to say, just passed out of committee with uh, unanimously, so there's broad support, and I believe we'll pass this year based on that 
assuming it gets called. You know, it's a difficult year, as usual, <laughs> but I'm, I'm hopeful. Something that also uh, comes up uh, every session is early voting. Where does that stand? Oh, yes. We have a bill again this year. I really think that it's time that we have, like 37 other states, more than one day to vote. We, right now, our state constitution limits us to just Tuesday. Uh, I would like to see that expanded to perhaps a weekend or, you know, my bill is basically three to five other days of early voting, depending on what the legislature would put in place. Uh, It also just passed out of the uh, GAE committee and is on its way to the floor. Uh, It passed in the House last year and was never called in the Senate. I'm hopeful this year it will be called. I think there is some broad support in the Senate. Uh, and if so, but it's a long haul to change the state constitution, because even if it passes the legislature this year, it will need to pass again next year. And then it goes on the ballot and every citizen can vote on whether they'd like to see more days of election. Again, this is where we live with Secretary of the State Denise Merrill. Uh, we're talking about uh, just safeguarding uh, and giving pub- the public confidence in uh, the elections uh, systems uh, that we have here in the state. Um, you know, we were talking about uh, midterm elections, and you had mentioned that you, because of the paper record that Connecticut has, people should not be concerned that their votes could be erased uh, right. come November. Um, but there is something, there's a movement uh, happening around the country, uh, this idea of a national popular vote compact. That's something that you actually support. Tell us why. Yes, because fundamentally, I think the person with the most votes should win. Um, The president is the only office that that's not true. So I think people are having a great deal of problem understanding why someone can get literally millions of votes more than the other person, but still doesn't win. And it, it really goes to the the way that our districts have been gerrymandered over the years and creating uh, a couple of states that are the swing states. We all know we talk about this. This is the other fallout from that, which is that a, a president can become president uh, just with a few a handful of states. And so that's why I support uh, the compact, which is basically a group of states can get together and say, you know, we're going to allocate our electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote. I think it's a pretty simple concept to understand, and I think there's a lot of support for it. And if Connecticut were to become into this compact, it would be the 11th state, but they would need a lot more support for there to be a change in the way that our our system is structured. Yes, because you need uh, 270 votes, uh, electoral votes, because that would be the 50 percent that you'd need. It would put you over that. And we don't still have enough states that uh, would come up to that total. I mean, Connecticut has seven, for example. So it would help, but it wouldn't put us over the top. I want to squeeze in a listener call before we head to break. Jay's calling from Ellington. Jay, go ahead. Yes, I have a question for the Secretary of State. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I'm aware of the fact that the state of Connecticut releases all the information about voters, and I think you just talked about it briefly, but the fact that it's released uh, to, uh, I, I know, particularly a website up in New Hampshire where this person is pr- uh, proposing that he's doing it for uh, uh, ancestry, uh, you know, collecting a database, and yet it's really all of the voters' personal information, name, address, date of birth, etc. And I think, it's, I think we sh- if, if there isn't a law, we should pass a law that prevents the publication of that information 
uh, out into the uh, out into the internet from a identity theft and privacy perspective. Jay, thank you for your call, Secretary of the State. Absolutely. And I think it's outrageous. It was part of my original proposal was that the list would not be released for any commercial or other purpose onto the Internet. Uh, That part of the bill did not come out of committee. There were a lot of concerns about how you would define that and so forth. And you have to remember, political people are the ones that use these lists most often. So I hope it will be offered as an amendment and maybe come back. But you are absolutely right. I'm well aware of this bad actor in New Hampshire who did publish this list and then was profiting from it. Um, so that is that was part of my proposal. Call your call your local state representative and ask them to put it back in. <laughs> we, we should say uh, Sherry Quickmeyer from uh, Common Cause said that uh, your original proposal may not be as effective because some of this data is already easy to be found on the internet. How do you respond? You know, I hate that argument. You know, just because you can already find everybody's personal information doesn't mean that we should be releasing two million people's information all in one fell swoop. That's the difference now between what used to be. Used to be you'd have to go to every town and get the information off a little card. Now, you know, two million people are are in in one place. And I think it's wrong. I just, you know, we're in a different era where people are data mining all the time. And just because it's out there doesn't mean we should be contributing to that. So if somebody wants to access this information, it's $300? That's right. Now Maine charges 30000 Correct. <laughs> There's more than one way to do this. <laughs> yeah. Denise Merrill again, Connecticut Secretary of the State. Thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, college graduations are just a few months away. Coming up, we're going to explore a unique partnership between Middlesex Community College and Weston University's Center for Prison Education. And we're going to learn about a group of adults reaching a milestone this summer. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A 2012 study of the Connecticut Department of Correction found nearly 8 in 10 adults had been rearrested within five years of being released from prison. Half of them returned to prison. In recent years, attention has grown around ways to reduce the recidivism rate. A unique program at Wesleyan University in Middletown aims to give incarcerated adults a chance at a college education. We wanted to know more about the impact of this program. Joining me now is Kristen Inglis, Academic Development and Planning Manager with the Wesleyan Center for Prison Education. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. For our listeners who may not know about the Center for Prison Education at Wesleyan, tell us about when it started and what was the the catalyst to begin this program. The program began in 2009 as a credit-bearing college program, so students taking Wesleyan-credited college courses. Um, But that arose out of years of more informal work that Wesleyan undergraduates had been doing at Cheshire Correctional, so going in and Uh, doing uh, informal reading groups, um, college prep style courses. And after a few years of doing that, these undergraduates felt that this work should really be formally recognized by Wesleyan in the form of Wesleyan credits and credit-bearing courses. So what has been the impact? How many um, incarcerated adults have been able to take advantage of this program? and, And what kind of outcomes are you seeing? So since 2009, we've had 130 incarcerated students, some at Cheshire Correctional, some at York Correctional, which is the one women's prison here in Connecticut, take college courses. 
Uh, we've offered on, over 90 credited courses since that time. So the program has really grown. Uh, today it serves around 75 students, 50 students at Cheshire, 25 students at York. And that's uh, from the original cohort of 19 students at Cheshire Correctional. What we see is really transformation both um, among the students who are in the program, but also among the faculty who go in to teach them. One of the really remarkable things about this program is that the learning um, goes both ways. Um, at a place like Wesleyan, your uh, standard student body consists of 18 to 22-year-olds who are coming to college with a fairly uh, limited life experience. Um, and uh, for faculty who go into Cheshire or go into York, they're encountering students who are approaching that material, whether it's Shakespeare or Plato, um, and bringing very diverse experiences um, to that. Um, students in the program tend to be um, older, uh, though the student range is between uh, you know the age of 18 up to the age of 63. Uh, uh, students who have children, students who have served in the, or uh, students who have children, students who have served in the military. So they really, really bring rich perspectives to the material that faculty find um, invigorates their teaching and invigorates their scholarship in some cases. You've mentioned it's transformative, but for uh, the individuals who've been in prison, I'm just curious, you know, what has been their traditional experience with education? Um, we hear so often about um, how our prison system in the U.S. disproportionately affects people of color, yeah. and uh, these are people who may not have been able to, to finish school or they've had challenges um, in their lives. And so how did they um, when they're able to get this opportunity, you know, how, what, what impact is it having on them? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, the prison system in this country uh, disproportionately affects people of color. Uh, our program really aims to match the demographics that you find in prison. So right now, 65% of the students in our program are African-American or Latino. Um, 60% of our students also came to the program with a GED as opposed to a high school diploma. So most of our students are coming to the program um, with non-traditional um, college uh, student backgrounds. Um, so we really aim to um, change the narrative that a lot of these students have about college and whether it's for them and um, what kind of an education that they can have. Many of them are first-generation college students. I consistently hear students say that they never knew anybody growing up who uh, went to college, who was successful in college. They never thought that this was really something for them. And so I think that a program like this really changes their own understanding of who they can be and what kind of uh, education they can obtain. This is where we live. Uh, in studio with me, Kristen Inglis, Academic Development and Planning Manager with the Wesleyan Center for Prison Education. This is a program that started back in 2009, um, allowing uh, some incarcerated adults uh, to take uh, uh, courses for college credit. Now, in 2016, the Center for Prison Education launched a, a partnership with Middlesex Community College. So also in studio with us is Dr. Stephen Minkler, Lead Campus Administrator at Middlesex Community College and a partner of this Wesleyan Center for Prison Education. Uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So I, I'm curious about uh, how Middlesex Community College got involved with uh, Wesleyan's program and, you know, what does this mean beyond just getting college credit for some of these adults? Sure. Well, Wesleyan uh, approached the Middlesex Community College in 2016, in particular our then-president, Dr. Anna Wasesha, with an idea to join the Prison Education Partnership 
primarily to help Wesleyan offer the associate degree uh, to students who are in the prison education program. Uh, Wesleyan is not accredited to offer that degree level, but Middlesex is. And and we felt that um, the historical mission of a community college is to be an open door policy, that we uh, have students of a wide variety of backgrounds, a wide variety of preparation. Um, And we felt that this was totally in line with our mission to be the college of our community. Uh, Several of our faculty members had previously taught in a prison education program and were among the first on board to not only volunteer to teach in this program, but to get their colleagues to understand the social justice aspect of really responding to the notion of a second chance society, where we do have people in prison who um, need to be able to to find what they are, who they are, and and to prepare themselves for reentry into the communities that they came from. So this is taking it a step further, allowing some of them to earn an associate's degree. What will they do with that degree? It's an inaugural class that will be getting that this summer. Is that right? Well, actually, yes. Uh, The the degree that we offer through this program is in general studies, which is an open sort of degree for students who intend to perhaps transfer, but also intend to just stop at the associate's degree that would prepare them for employment. Um, It's kind of your, your classical liberal arts type of degree. And Many of the students had begun taking classes through Wesleyan's program as early as 2009 and had a a wide variety of coursework already completed. So by taking at least five courses with Middlesex on their transcript, this allows us to put our, uh, our seal of approval on it, if you will, for the associate's degree program. Some students have uh, been released from prison before completing the program and actually have come to Middlesex since then. And I think part of the the, the beauty of a program like this is that it has prepared those students to understand what college life is about, what the expectations are, what the faculty can offer to them. And when they come to Middlesex, uh, they are meeting people that they've already met in prison because we go there. Uh, our faculty go there. Our admissions and financial aid counselors go there. And, and that's also another part of the partnership that became available uh, soon after we joined forces, which was the availability of Second Chance Pell Money, which is a, a pilot program by the Federal Department of Education to allow some incarcerated individuals to receive federal loans for their collegiate education. Now, uh, Kristen, we were talking about this inaugural class earning associate's degrees this summer. How many are we talking about? So we'll have about 25 graduates this summer, um, eight at York Correctional and 15 at, um, at Cheshire. And um, uh, many of these students have been in the program since the earliest days, 2009. So it will be a really wonderful opportunity to recognize their academic achievements, but also an opportunity for their families to see them um, uh, honored for those achievements. So we'll be having, uh, you know, as close to a traditional ceremony as we can have at those two facilities with family members and friends coming in attendance. Now, has retention been an issue where um, an individual starts this program, um, but for whatever reason isn't able to follow through? I'm just curious how what kind of supports you have in place uh, to help. Uh, again, these aren't just adults going to class uh, uh, on their own time. They're in uh, a, a prison, in a prison setting with other circumstances. And so I'm just curious, like, what kind of support they have in place to, to keep at this program? We actually have a rather low attrition rate, which um, is something that we're we're proud of. And part of that is achieved through just a lot of student support. So we have four full-time staff members who go into the prison every single week. 
Um, there is almost uh, no day in any given week when there isn't some staff member there who is checking in with students, seeing how things are going. Are you struggling with a class? Do you need additional supports? Uh, where they need additional supports, we're finding you know, study materials, study guides, talking with the professor about what additional resources might be available. So it's a program that really takes seriously individualized student support. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's been successful. Now, uh, Stephen Minkler mentioned the Second Chance Pell pilot program. This was started under uh, President Obama in 2015. It's helped enroll more than 12,000 incarcerated students in higher ed programs around the country. So what's at stake here in terms, will this uh, actual uh, program keep going under the new administration? That's a that's a million dollar question. Uh, no one's sure. Uh, there is right now um, an act called the REAL Act, which is seeking to um, reinstate Pell grants uh, across the board. So under the Second Chance Pell um, grant uh, experiment, it's just making federal funds available for a certain select group of incarcerated students. If the REAL Act is approved, then it would be opening up Pell grants to all incarcerated students. And that would enable colleges and universities to really, really ramp up the kind of programming that they offer in prisons. So we certainly hope that uh, the REAL Act will be successful. For the um, uh, Second Chance Pell uh, experiment, we're waiting to see if it will be reapproved. Uh, Steve, go ahead. I know, but I was, I was going to say that I think that both institutions have committed to this program with or without Pell funding. Our partnership started before we were awarded Pell funding for this program. That's right. And we're committed to making sure that it's, it's sustained for years afterwards through a mix of private funding and what the colleges can each uh, provide. So if this money were to go away, there's a way to sustain it, is what you're saying. Yes. That's right. And that's really important. One of the um, biggest problems with college and prison is that uh, when they are entirely reliant on public funding, uh, you can have programs shutter overnight as soon as you know the public will uh, to fund these programs changes. So we've made a lot of effort to engage in very um, sustained uh, fundraising campaigns so that the program can and will continue well after a Second Chance Pell is over and um, you know well into the future. We've been talking about the benefits of this program again, a collaboration between Wesleyan Center for Prison Education and, and Middlesex Community College. But how do you respond to critics who may be listening, uh, who uh, are hearing that um, in adults who've committed a crime and are now serving time are getting a free education, when we know that it's so difficult for people who are working um, and it's hard to afford it and they may not have committed a crime, how do you balance that? What do you say to them? Well, I'm, I think where that really comes from is a frustration about just the astronomical cost of higher education right now and, and in particular quality higher education. And so what I want to say is I absolutely agree that the cost of higher education is out of control and that we as a country need to come together and really address how to make college more affordable for everybody, incarcerated or not incarcerated. Um, so so I think that, that that's one place uh, just to acknowledge that this is a serious, serious problem. Um, and offering a, a, an affordable, in this case, free college education to, to prisoners um, you can think of it as a demonstration project of sorts of really saying um, that we are committed to making college affordable because we think that it makes um, the student better. We think it makes the, um, the communities that they return to better. Um, the second thing I would say is that um, 
you know, we talk about cost, but the average cost of incarcerating a prisoner in the state of Connecticut is $50,000 a year. That's five zero. Um, our program costs under $5,000 a year um, to, to offer college education to a student. So if you're a taxpayer and you're concerned about where your taxes are going, you should be very, very concerned with reducing recidivism. And college and prison has been shown to remarkably reduce recidivism. Um, it's about a 50% reduction in recidivism if you look at most studies. So ultimately, you're saving money through programs like this, and that money can then be used to invest in colleges and universities who can then um, provide a more affordable education to students. Stephen Minkler. Yeah, and, and national studies have also shown that prison education programs help improve the culture within the prison themselves. So these prisoner students become role models to other uh, prisoners in the in their where their facilities are located, and they can demonstrate to their fellow prisoners that this is a matter of of them kind of getting their life together and preparing for their future rather than not doing a program like a prison ed program. So it it helps reduce some of the costs of actually running uh, incarceration facilities as well. Now, Stephen, you mentioned earlier some of uh, the adults who've gone through uh, the the prison education program at Wesleyan who are now enrolled at Middlesex Community College. What's it been like for them on the outside? Because we hear so often that there are obstacles, um, perception obstacles, or it's hard for them to even get a job because they have that record. What do you hear from your students who are continuing their education, uh, but there are some realities out there that it's hard to to uh, to to reach their goals. Right. Now, there are some some limitations in, in terms of some fields that require students to go through background checks or perhaps uh, have a limited criminal background record. And we do try to advise students based on what their interests are and, and what they perceive their, their potential career interests could be into fields that they're more likely to have success in. Uh, what we do hear from these students, though, is... Um, an abiding thanks to Wesleyan and Middlesex Community College for providing this program and, and for being uh, the, the face of what higher education can mean for them. So by having those students attend Middlesex, again, they, they already know the faculty, they already know the folks in our enrollment services office. And we do have uh, some, some ability, although it is a little limited, but we do have some ability to refer them out to services in the community if they are in need of housing or perhaps some, some job and career advice. We have career counselors on campus who can help them prepare for interviews and, and for the job search. So um, we're doing the best that we can to help them facilitate that transition back to their community. Uh, Kristen, I wanted to go back to you again. Kristen Inglis, Academic Development and Planning Manager with the Wesleyan Center for Prison Education. Uh, you broke down some numbers for us earlier. I'm just curious, um, is there room for this program to grow, or what have you seen in terms of uh, resources uh, contracting over the years? Absolutely. So uh, we traditionally do admissions every two years. And part of that is really to try to grow sustainably um, and to make sure that we are building the strongest possible program uh, before uh, expanding it. But we have found that every two years is a, is a good number for bringing in uh, new students. It also provides an opportunity for students to get to know each other as a cohort. One of the realities of prison is that there aren't a whole lot of um, uh, uh, opportunities for students to have, um, you know, time learning together um, in a in a, um, a kind in the way that you might think of as a, a liberal arts campus. And so, really having that time when students are taking the same courses, they're in study halls together, and they get to know each other as a cohort. We found that that really strengthens the program overall. So, absolutely, we're looking forward to. 
um, expanding. Uh, our last admission cycle was in uh, 2017, so our next one will be in 2019. And have there been other um, collaborations like this in other states with this public and private partnership? Um, there aren't many. I would love to see more because I really think that there are just so many synergies that you find when you bring together a public institution and a private institution. Um, one uh, program that certainly was an inspiration for this program is a program that is uh, run out of Cornell University in partnership um, with Cayuga Community College. Um, and there they have done some really remarkable work. Uh, and the director of that program, Rob Scott, is someone who I learned a lot from and who just provided really invaluable advice for thinking through uh, how this program uh, could be set up and be successful. So this summer, an inaugural class of participants in uh, the Center for Prison Education will be getting their associate's degree thanks to this collaboration with Middlesex Community College. Uh, one last question. What's been the impact on their families? You hear uh, from students how being in college has allowed them to reconnect with their children in ways that um, uh, weren't possible before. Students um, have their own children in college, and so being able to talk through this is what's going on in my um, college course, uh, what's going on in your college course, uh, that's a really important um, opportunity for bonding uh, for students of ours. Uh, who have younger children, uh, being in college allows them to feel like they can be really good role models to their children um, and show their child, you too can go to college. I'm doing it. You can do it too. So I think that there's been a real strengthening um, for many of our students, a real strengthening in their family lives. Kristen Inglis, Academic Development and Planning Manager with the Wesleyan Center for Prison Education. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Also, Dr. Stephen Minkler, lead campus administrator at Middlesex Community College, a partner of the Wesleyan Center for Prison Education. Steve, thanks for your time. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, it's officially spring, but it doesn't mean we're in the clear from having one more snowstorm. Speaking of snow, are you still sore at local meteorologists for last Wednesday's storm that turned out to be a snore Easter. We'll hear from one journalism professor who says, don't blame meteorologists. Quinnipiac University's Ben Bogardis will join us to explain after the break. And NBC Connecticut's Ryan Hanrahan, too. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Rather, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, legal weed is coming to Massachusetts this summer. Will Connecticut follow? We'll find out the latest. And of course, we want to hear from you, too. That's tomorrow. Now, I grew up in western PA where lake effect snowstorms were the norm. So imagine my surprise when I moved to Connecticut in New England and saw how TV stations treated each impending snowstorm like the coming apocalypse, not to mention some stations giving snowstorms names. Now, last Wednesday's Nor'easter was no exception, except only a small portion of the state actually saw the snow totals that had been forecast. There's been a, a lot of uh, conversations on Twitter and, and elsewhere, people being frustrated with their local forecasters. But my next guest says, don't blame the meteorologists for all the hype. Joining me on the phone, Ben Bogardis, Assistant Professor of Journalism at Quinnipiac University. You can join the conversation, too, 860-275-726. Ben, welcome to the show. 
Oh, thank you for having me. So uh, your take is don't blame the meteorologists. Who should we blame for what's been uh, been a lot of uh, conversations in the last week, a lot of frustration out there? Yeah, absolutely. I think it uh, comes down to the way the meteorologists are marketed by the TV stations, because weather is the most important part of any newscast, because it affects everyone who's watching. So the stations really want to build up their brand to be the weather station to trust, the weather authority. And when people are you know, sold advertisements, when they're sold a product, and that product is the accuracy of the weather team, when the weather team's forecast doesn't live up to the uh, uh, commercials, then people feel disappointed. Mm. So it's the station setting viewers up for disappointment in, uh, again, what you were saying about how the forecasts are marketed to be the most accurate. Give us some examples of what you saw, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have uh, you know stations in the... Uh, uh, Connecticut market. They have multiple chief meteorologists. Other stations uh, run television commercials advertising how they're independently rated as the most accurate. They have uh, they, uh, snow monsters which uh, drive around. They start early. They stay on for uh, 24 hours straight during a storm. So they're really trying to convince people that they are the uh, correct forecaster and that they are the most accurate and that people should watch them and they'll know what happens. And people see that. They trust it, and then they watch the forecast, and they look outside, and there's no snow, and they feel almost duped. Mm. Let's get a, a meteorologist's take on what you're saying, Ben. Joining us by phone, Ryan Hanrahan, chief meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. His blog is on Ryan's radar. Uh, Ryan, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. So you've been fielding a lot of this frustration on, on Twitter. What's your reaction to what Ben is saying about uh, stations hyping the storms up, and when they don't exactly uh, uh, fall the way they've been forecast, there's a lot of finger-pointing and blaming going on? I, I, I mean, I, I totally understand how uh, viewers get disappointed when the forecast doesn't work out. Um, people change their plans. People move things around. Uh Parents have to make arrangements to pick up their kids early from school, and then it doesn't snow, and it's like, well, I have to move my whole day around. So I totally understand the frustration uh, from viewers and from the public when the forecast is wrong. Um, but I do think it's important that that TV stations are able to market their teams for all different kinds of reasons, whether it's the most experienced, the most accurate, um, the best technology. All of those things are important because at the end of the day, TV stations are selling a product and they want people to watch. And I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily unfair that they do that. Um, and I do think some of those things are important. And I think they, they do give people a reason to watch. Although I will say that before this last storm, I think it really showed the value of a TV news broadcast and watching weather in that news broadcast the night before the storm, even though we were predicting six to 12 inches of snow, I must have said a million times on the air that I really was not sure about this forecast. And I could see it going either way. There were certain flags that were, you know, warning flags that were coming up with a lot of the stuff we were looking at, which gave me a really sort of uneasy feeling about this storm, certainly much worse than most storms uh, we get. So if someone was watching the 6 p.m. news or the 11 p.m. news the day before the storm, they probably had a much better understanding that this one did have a lot of questions than someone who was just getting a forecast from Facebook or Twitter or uh, even a, a weather app. Now, Ryan, uh, looking back at uh, what you and your team forecast, uh, you know, are there any are there any things where that you would want to change for that that next big snowstorm we might be getting? <laughs> that's a 
that's a good question. And actually, one of the things that personally was the most frustrating about this storm is that looking back, I'm not sure I would have done a lot differently with the forecast. There were just so many competing pieces of information. Uh, one of our computer models, for instance, the day before, had uh, one to three inches of snow uh, forecast in the Hartford area. Uh, that was clearly uh, a, a low outlier. It turned out to be pretty close to accurate. But another piece of information that is actually another computer model that has had a pretty good winter was showing over 20 inches of snow near New Haven. So how do you how do you combine those two things into a forecast? It's really tough to do. Uh, but I do think one of the biggest values that meteorologists offer is to be able to come on the air and during a three-minute weather segment be able to add a little bit of uncertainty to give some context to the forecast. You know, a lot of times people just want a number, hey, exactly how much snow will fall in my backyard, but that's a hard question to answer, and sometimes we're a lot more confident in the forecast and other times not nearly as confident, and that's what we can add, and I do think that adds a lot of value for people watching at home. Uh, what I've seen uh, people commenting that they'd like to see maybe a probability map or maybe uh, shrinking the uh, sort of the seven-day forecast, just focusing on the next three days. Are those things that uh, that you think your team should do, Ryan? So, so those those are great. I mean, the, the, those are tough questions to answer. So, going to a more probabilistic forecast is something that, as a scientist, I would absolutely love to do. Um, if I could give everything as a probabilistic forecast, it would, it's probably the best way to really understand things. One of the issues is, is we've given forecasts, uh, we've given deterministic forecasts. The high temperature tomorrow will be 62 degrees. Uh, we'll get two to four inches of snow. For so long, I don't think we can go back. We can't, you know, the genie's out of the bottle with that. People are still going to demand a specific number. Um, so, I think that would be a great thing to do. I don't think the public would really uh, like that because they're going to get that information from somewhere. If I don't tell them the forecast, if I don't tell them how much snow is going to fall, they're going to go online and find another forecast or they're going to just change the TV channel and find the forecast that they're looking for. And we notice this a lot. We're actually pushed not by our marketing team or not by management at the station, but we're actually forced to put out snowfall forecast numbers far earlier than we used to, only because that data is already out online. So if someone has, is already looking at a forecast from the, the National Weather Service, they're putting their snow forecast out 72 hours ahead of time. We would never do that. The AccuWeather app and the Weather Channel app are putting snow forecasts out five days ahead of time. We wouldn't do that either, but we're sort of getting pushed into, well, we've got to get something out there because our competition, which is really the Internet and social media and apps, they're already putting forecasts out, specific snow forecasts, like 8 to 12 inches of snow so far ahead of time. It's really forcing, forcing our hands. I wanted to bring Ben Bogardis back into the conversation, assistant professor of journalism at Quinnipiac University. So, Ben, when it comes to uh, local TV uh, viewership, is weather the most important driver when it comes oh, to the absolutely. news? Because the, the idea is that weather affects everyone, young, old, people who go to work, go to school, uh, stay at home, retired. You know, if you run a story about, uh, you know, the, um, you know, crime in New Haven, people in Hartford don't necessarily care about it. If you run a story about rising property taxes, renters don't care about it. But weather being something that affects everyone, you have a great weather story, you're going to have the most viewership. And when uh, there is frustration with maybe the channel they've been watching, are they mo more likely to change or is it just uh, venting and, and forgetting about it until the next one? 
I think it's more venting and disappointment because mm-hmm. they want to know what's going on tomorrow, but obviously that's impossible. The uh, meteorologists are scientists and are looking at probabilities, but when they, people hear the forecast, they hear a number and they think that's what's going to happen, and if they don't get exactly what they're expecting, they start to lose trust, and then they start to vent and use social media, and I think social media also amplifies the anger because people can type out a tweet in um, you know, less than a minute and send it off. There's no thought. If they were writing a longer email, if they were making a phone call or writing a letter, you know, maybe they would step back and say, well, maybe I don't want to be that mean or that harsh. But instantaneous social media makes it easier to complain, to amplify your complaints. Uh, Ryan Hanrahan is also with the Chief Meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. Um, you're pretty active on, on Twitter, uh, responding uh, to those uh, venting uh, tweets. I also should mention that with the Snow Monster, it has its own Twitter account. It does, yeah. So, I mean, we certainly respond to, you know, I respond to people, and I'll be the first one to say, hey, this forecast was wrong. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about it. I didn't have to shovel uh, after, after this snowstorm. The, the, the forecast was wrong. And I will say... For every mean-spirited tweet we get on Twitter or Facebook, we probably get about a 40 nice comments. Um, and so that's really nice to see. So I it can't really uh, – and then sometimes, look, I get it. If, if someone's plans were totally blown up and they have to – you know, they want to vent on, on Twitter, feel free. I'm more than happy to, to take the time out to respond. But I also don't want to get – have lost in this conversation the fact that our forecasts are so much more accurate than they were 15 or 20 years ago. I think we're almost a victim of our own success. A lot of times with even the other storms this year, this storm being the the exception, you know, we were nailing the, the time a snowstorm would start to within 30 or 40 minutes. That When I started 14 years ago at NBC Connecticut or 13 years ago, we would never be able to get even close to that kind of uh, specific information out the day ahead of a storm uh, we are you know we're looking at hurricane even hurricane sandy and hurricane irene we tracked them off the coast from off the coast of africa eight days out and we watched every step of the way so there are there are a lot of things that we still can't get exactly right and some storms are still going to throw curveballs at us but weather forecasting has become so much more accurate, um, even in the 13 years I've been here. We're doing things now that I didn't think would be possible when I started. So the science has just evolved so much, and that's, that's really exciting for us. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, when we get one wrong, since we don't get them wrong nearly as much as we used to, it can really uh, uh, stand out and, and, and become something that people get really annoyed about. Ryan Hanrahan, we thank you for joining us today, Chief Meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. We should mention your station doesn't name winter storms. You get a uh, A-plus for that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And Ben Bogarda is Assistant Professor of Journalism at Quinnipiac University. Thanks, Ben, for your time. You're welcome. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.